This season of Out Alive is brought to you by Garmin. Stay tuned until the end of the show where you'll hear this bonus survival story. I went over a cliffside. I was able to dig my fingers in and grasp the rock wall and a ledge before I went off the cliff. This episode contains adult content and language which may not be suitable for all listeners. There is remote, and then there are the Northwest Territories of Canada. It's a place that human development hasn't much touched, leaving its ecosystem as pristine and unhindered as it's been for millennia. People visit, but don't remain. And when they do, they do well to remember the food chain is an ancient organization and the grizzly bear is its king. I made a decision to survive. You're in that survival mode. The the idea of dying wasn't in my head. I knew immediately it was the worst case scenario. I was in a fight for my life situation. Whenever you walk out on these trails, you're in their house. I'm Louisa Albanese, and you're listening to Out Alive by Backpacker. In each episode of this podcast, we'll bring you real stories of real people who survived the unsurvivable. I saw the rope zip through the rappel ring, and I couldn't do anything. Learn what went wrong, what went right, and how you can escape if the worst-case scenario happens to you. There is no way we would find anybody alive. Alex Messenger is a photographer and writer from Duluth, Minnesota. In 2005, the summer before his senior year of high school, Alex returned to Camp Minogin for their backcountry canoe program— This trip was to be the longest and most advanced yet. When I was 17, um, I embarked on a 42-day whitewater canoe trip with five other guys. And it was the pinnacle trip for all of us. We'd each been going on ever longer and more intense trips in the summers prior. And then this was going to be the last biggest trip that any of us had gone on. So to give you an idea of of how remote this trip was, um, we started out from camp in northern Minnesota and we drove north into Canada and we drove to the end of the road in northern Manitoba uh, in a little tiny town called Lynn Lake. And from there, we hopped on a Twin Otter float plane and then flew into the Northwest Territories. The Northwest Territories of Canada are a wild expanse of tundra and pristine, icy rivers and lakes. The subarctic climate and vast, barren landscape make for an otherworldly terrain that few people have the opportunity to explore. The area is teeming with wildlife, such as muskoxen, intimidating horned mammals that resemble American bison, caribou, and grizzlies. We took out our canoes. We had to reassemble parts of them. And then all of a sudden, the bush plane was gone, and it was just the six of us out there in the wilderness. I was just suddenly struck with with the gravity of of being out there and just being completely self-sufficient. This was a self-supported trip, so once we landed, it was just us. We just started paddling down Dubont River, which is this amazing river. You know, we cooked really good food. Um, We learned how bad bugs can truly be, being swarmed by thousands of mosquitoes and thousands of black flies. Our first day of rest was 20 days into this trip, and we 
fished and we ate amazing food. And um, halfway through our layover day, we noticed something on the tundra across the canyon. And Mike pointed at it. He's like, bear. And we looked and it was a barren ground grizzly bear walking towards our camp in this completely empty landscape. It was the only thing that was moving. And uh, it was really haunting to see that out there. As soon as Mike pointed at it and yelled, the bear looked up and realized that something was amiss. But as soon as it saw that we were there and heard us, it turned around and it left. I remember turning to Dan at that point and saying, that's the only way that I'd ever want to see a grizzly bear in the wild is on the other side of a canyon with huge white water between us. After seeing that first grizzly bear, we all reviewed what we were supposed to do, how to open the bear mace, um, how to press the plunger and start shooting the mace. Again, what to do when you see a grizzly bear. Hey, bear, whoa, bear, it's okay, bear. And um, double checking that our camp was set up right, you know, that the food was really far away from the tents and that we had all of our defensive mechanisms like the bear poppers and the bear mace um, accessible and, and that we each knew how to use it. We've talked about bear spray on the show before, but in case you're new here, here are some things you need to know. It's essentially a very intense pepper spray, similar to what you might use on an attacker in a dark alley. Pepper spray, bear spray, or bear mace, as Alex is referring to it, are literally made out of hot peppers. It's the same stuff you can find in nearly every brand of your favorite spicy hot sauce. Practice removing the safety and have it easily accessible at all times. Bear spray is not a repellent and should only be sprayed in the direction of a charging bear. The next day, uh, we left our layover site there and we continued our way downriver until we got to Princess Mary Lake, which was this enormous, beautiful lake. I think it was like 10 or 15 miles across on each side and it had this beautiful island in the middle of it that kind of rose up like a volcano and we decided to make camp there and so we paddled to this island and decided that we would have our next layover day on this island. So we landed at this island on Princess Mary Lake and we climbed halfway up um, this rolling tundra slope that went up from shore and we made camp right below this steep rocky ridge. That would be our campsite for two nights and then went about our layover day. Partway through the day, uh, right after lunch, everyone decided that they were going to go to the top of this ridge behind our campsite and explore it. And I was just really tired. I was like, well, no, I'm going I'm to stay in camp and I'm going to nap. Here is one of Alex's fellow campers and close friend, Mike. Most of the group went up onto this ridge line. The tundra is so flat and so barren that you could see for tens of miles the beautiful sky. I remember the conglomerate rock on the top of this ridgeline that was polished from the glaciers thousands of years ago. So nothing like I've ever seen before. It was gorgeous. When I was on that ridge with Dan and everybody else was gone, I had this feeling wash over me. It was a sense of urgency to get back to camp. But as quickly as it had come, uh, it was certainly gone by the time it had come, I got back to camp. I don't know how long I was asleep. I don't know if I was dreaming or not, 
but I woke up and I threw on my clothes. I opened the tent door. I looked towards the bug tent and almost all the guys were were back already. Um, It looked like Dan was the only one that hadn't gotten back yet. About when I started up, Dan was starting down and uh, it was like 100 vertical feet. It took me like 10 minutes to climb up. I had my camera with me in my Pelican case, and he was excited that I was going to take a picture up there because it was this beautiful vista where you could see everywhere. At the top, it flattened out into these rolling granite domes. As I was walking up one side of one of these granite domes, this flash of brown fur appeared at the horizon. The first thought I had was that this was a musk oxen and how bad of a situation that is. In the next millisecond, As this creature continued up the ridge, I realized that this was not a musk oxen. This was a grizzly bear. It was just the absolute worst case scenario. It was 30 feet in front of me. And at that point, it's just a matter of, is it gonna fight or is it gonna run? And I instantly thought of the bear mace that was in the tent and I didn't have it with me. I started backing up really slowly. I really, really wanted to run, but I couldn't because that's the only thing you can't do is run. Backing up slowly, hey bear, whoa bear, it's okay bear. Trying not to make eye contact, averting my eyes. Meanwhile, the bears, you know, it went from quizzical and not quite sure to, I think I need to test this thing. So it launched forward on its front paws and grunted at me in a, in a false charge. And I kept backing up slowly trying to increase our 30-foot distance a little bit without (laughs) triggering its chase response. And uh, it did another stationary bluff charge. I kept backing away slowly, talking to it. It's okay, Bear. And uh, it basically faded from stationary bluff charges to a full-speed charge. Bears can run 35-plus miles an hour, and I barely increased that 30-foot distance at all. And I faded from saying, hey, bear, whoa, bear, it's okay, bear, to yelling help and obscenities and just trying to let the guys know back at camp what was happening. And the wind was blowing the wrong direction. They couldn't hear a thing. They had no idea what was going on. So when it was five or 10 feet from me coming full speed, I could feel the ground shaking every time that its paws hit. I had my Pelican case with my camera in it in my hand. I reached my hand back and I threw it underhand at the bear and I hit it square in the nose with enough force to turn its head all the way to the side. So for a couple steps, that bear couldn't see me and I was able to jump out of the way and dodge it on that first pass, bullfighting style. As soon as it realized it missed me, it turned around and came at me again and I jumped out of the way again. And each time it came at me, it got closer and closer. And after another successful dodge, and by successful, I mean that it didn't bite me and it didn't hit me that hard, but it was flailing its arms at me with its claws and um, it got my back and my arms and stuff um, as I was dodging it. And somehow that didn't break the skin. But each time we got closer and closer, I'm just uh, at this point yelling to the guys and I'm yelling no and the bear's growling at me, it's swiping at me, and it's incredibly fast. Like when it changes direction, it's almost imperceivable how fast it is. It's like they hit a curve on a track and it's just boom, they're going the opposite direction. So we get closer and closer and I'm absolutely terrified. Each time my thought process is that I'm getting closer and closer to dying and that there's not much that I can do. 
just me and my hands and I'm wearing sandals. The next time it came at me, it bit at my leg and I pulled my leg out of the way right at the last second and it's just snapshot just a couple inches from my left leg, barely missing me. And then at the same instant, it reached up with its paw and I saw it when it was just a few inches from my face and knew that it was about to hit me. It smelled terrible. I got the smell when it was closer to me and it just smelled like a dog that had never bathed. I just remember the scale of it and looking at the fur go past is like this wall or this part of a ship going past me. And that's what hit me across the face. It just swatted me out of the air like I was a bug. I went flying to the side and it threw me to the ground while I was still falling hard onto my tailbone. And as soon as I was on the ground, its head was at my thigh and it bit my thigh right at the top of the leg, right below the hip joint. I felt its teeth go in both sides of my leg, and then I blacked out. And at that instant, right before I blacked out, I knew that I was about to die, and the only thing I kept thinking was just how tragic that was, and how sad it made me, and how I didn't want to die. And then it was just black. The next instant I remember, I had no idea which direction was up. It felt like I was tumbling under a wave, and I tracked along the horizon and saw that the bear was still there, but it was running away at a trot. Uh, basically, I'd been a threat to this bear, and as soon as that threat was eliminated, it wanted to get the heck out of Dodge. But as it was running away at a trot, it was looking at me. It was checking to see if I was still incapacitated. So I froze, I averted my eyes just so that I could see it barely out of the periphery of my vision. And I waited for it to go, for it to completely go over the ridge. And I'd been completely elated when I woke up. I was like, oh my gosh, I am alive. I thought it was dead. And then when I saw that bear again, it was like starting all over again. My adrenaline was just through the roof and my pulse was racing again. And so I was just like, don't come back, don't come back, don't come back waited for the grizzly bear to go back over the ridge. I waited longer so that if I stood up completely, it wouldn't be able to see me as it looked over its shoulders. And then once it was gone, I kind of leaned back on my, on my legs and was like, okay, what happened? You know, what are my injuries like? Um, I felt my leg and it was wet. I was like, oh no, that's blood. If there's already that much blood, like how much more time do I have? And I lifted my hand up to look at it, and it wasn't blood, it was bare saliva, all sticky and extending between my fingers. So I very carefully got up. My leg hurt a lot, but the adrenaline was now masking it, but it still hurt a ton. I was like, okay, I need to get back to camp because I just got mauled by a grizzly bear, and I have to get there before my adrenaline rush wears off. So I got up, I grabbed my pelican case with the camera in it, started running back to camp, it was 200 yards away as the crow flies, and the last 50 were 100 vertical feet down that ridge that had taken me 10 minutes to climb up. The whole time I'm running towards that ridge, I'm checking over my shoulder to see if the bear is coming back. The whole time my leg is hurting more and more, and I'm trying to be as quiet as I can so that it doesn't hear anything and, and realize that I'm still alive. I finally got to the ridge and looked down and saw the tents and saw our canoes, and there's, there's no motion. Um, the guys are all just sitting in the tent, 
completely oblivious to what's just happened. It's maybe been five minutes since I left them, since, since I left the top of the ridge. Alex came running over the top of the bluff. Here is Dan, the guide from Camp Minogin. Shouting, bear, bear. And, and I yelled back up at him. I was like, Alex, stop. You know, don't joke around about bear. And he kept yelling, bear, bear. Dan looks up through the tent and he's like, Alex, you have to be serious with me. Are you being serious? I was like, yes, I'm fucking serious. I just got mauled by a bear. And I didn't care what they thought. I was running down that ridge. I did not want to be at the top anymore. As I'm going down, um, I can't use my leg anymore. And I end up holding it with my arms and moving it with my arms because anytime I flex the muscle, it's just agony. And so I quickly ran up to the, the bluff to grab him. You know, and, and in my head, I'm thinking, okay, somebody's attacked by a bear, you know, their intestines are hanging out or something. And, you know, visibly, there wasn't a, a, a lot you could see um, right away that uh, was wrong with him. He was just kind of had a limp. And so I, I grabbed him and kind of threw him over my shoulder and, like, helped him down the bluff. It was a pretty steep hill. And at the bottom of the bluff near our tent, kind of started to assess the situation. While Alex may not have appeared to be gravely injured, the remote nature of their trip made the situation dire. The boys were 29 days into their 42-day, 600-mile canoe trip and still 100 miles from their destination, the remote village of Baker Lake. They all exploded out of the tent as soon as, as they realized what had actually happened and were going for the med kit, for the bear mace, for the bear poppers. I mean, he was in shock. So the, there was the, the adrenaline was hitting for him. But I mean, you know, considering he was a 17-year-old kid that just got bit by a bear and was able to get through the whole situation, I don't know a lot of people that would have been able to handle that situation in the way he did and, you know, have the mental capacity to, like, play dead when the bear had attacked him and not tumble down this this pretty steep hill off the bluff. By the time he got to me, just a little ways up from the bottom, I couldn't, I couldn't move my leg anymore, and my arms were exhausted from trying to move it. So he helped me hobble down the rest of the way, uh, and then we started doing first aid, and he did a full head-to-toe exam, checking me for all the injuries that I knew about and didn't know about. One of the canines had gone in a quarter inch from my femoral artery, which if it had hit that, I would have bled out probably on the run back. Right next to that puncture wound was a compression wound uh, where that same canine had pushed in to its full length, um, but it didn't break the skin. It just compressed all of the tissues um, and blood wouldn't actually come back to the, those areas, um, we'd find out later. So I had several other compression wounds from other teeth around the rest of the jaw, on the top jaw and the bottom jaw. So my entire leg was in its mouth um, when it had bit me. It was a very lucky bite, not just because of location where it just missed my femoral artery, but also because grizzlies have the power to bite through something like your femur. So this bear kind of tempered its bite a little bit. Here's Mike again. It wasn't until Dan started to do look over Alex and uh, you know use his wilderness first responder skills that we saw the extent of his injury. Um, you know, the bite marks on his leg um, were, were something that were not immediately visible. I remember being like, whoa, you've got a bear claws on your fleece that didn't go all the way through, that's crazy. 
when he came down, um, you know, he was limping and, 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 you know, was complaining about the, the bear bite on his leg. And like that by far was the biggest injury. And so, uh, the bear had bit him on the upper leg and it was pretty close to the femoral artery. You know, it was a pretty deep puncture and puncture wounds are really hard to deal with because trying to irrigate them and clean them out is, is always difficult. And then when you're doing that in a wilderness setting, that's even more difficult because trying to get clean enough water that you can irrigate a wound like that is, is a little tricky. So Dan makes sure I'm not bleeding out. He checks me head to toe. Once he's done triaging me, uh, he goes and grabs a satellite phone and calls camp. Since Alex was a minor and in the care of Camp Minogin, Alex's parents were notified of the attack immediately. Here's Alex's mom, Phyllis Messenger. Well, the day of the attack, the uh, camp director tried to call us and he left a message. So we missed the message. Probably good because one of the messages was really garbled and it would have terrified us. So he, he finally called back again early the next morning and he said something like, um, there's been an incident on trail. Alex is okay, but he was attacked by a grizzly bear. And, you know, we practically fell off our chairs, I think. But but he went on to say, you know, he's, he's okay. He's functioning. We're in contact with, uh, I mean, there's a doctor on our staff right now. We're in contact with other folks uh, to think about various risks such as rabies and, and other things. And so they, they assured us that they were monitoring it and they were going to be calling us every 12 hours. I think the gravity of the situation hit everyone really hard um, pretty shortly after it happened. You know, after that initial come down of adrenaline of like, once you get past that point, it's like, okay, what do we do next? And that's a tough decision and a tough conversation when you're that remote. So this event really changed how the how the trip was um, gonna go from there. And I was able to paddle just like any of the other guys. And um, that was really empowering and a really good feeling. But I would see bears everywhere. So at that point, you know, I was always with Dan. We were kind of, there's this proximity clause. Uh, he had to keep me safe. He was working really hard to keep the rest of the group safe. The night before we'd had, we had muskoxen come into our camp um, while he was on the phone with camp. And we had to basically evacuate to the boats. Um, and I can't move my leg at all. So people are carrying me down to the boats. So the next day they decided to push on. Without a helicopter at their disposal, the only way to get Alex to safety was to paddle. After the bear attack and the threatening behavior from the musk oxen, the group couldn't help but feel a sense of foreboding. We pack up our, our stuff and get into the canoes and start paddling out onto the lake. And after, I don't know, a half hour of paddling, we look back to this island and Everywhere around us, it was it was clear sky, except the island was completely enshrouded in fog. And it was just a really eerie feeling. Like, there was something about that island that, that we weren't supposed to do. I remember we pushed really hard after that. But that next day, we paddled, and it was one of our longest days on the river. And then the next day, we 
got locked into a really big storm. We had a ton of rain and um, the water level rose a foot overnight. I remember pulling the canoe up with Dan and being like, Dan, it's gonna be good here. Like I was just ready to fall asleep. And that canoe ended up getting uh, washed away as the lake rose from the rain. Um, and we, we lost that canoe. Two of our guys, Dan and, and Augie, were able to go out and find our food barrel, which had been in the canoe, which was really, really good that we were able to get that back. It was this epic storm, but we were wind and rainbound there for a few days. Um, and then while we were there, my legs started showing signs of infection despite our cleaning it all the time. Um, so we started treating it with antibiotics that we had in our, our very well-stocked med kit. And event, it, it actually became resistant to those antibiotics. And at that point, a helicopter got dispatched to come pick me up. Ultimately, the reason why he got evac is because of the infection and that the antibiotics we had weren't the right type of antibiotics to deal with that infection. And so it kind of felt like a bit of a slap in the face. Like we, we put in a lot of effort to try to keep the trip together and then it, it came down to something, you know, a technical difficulty with the, the type of antibiotics we had. Dan asked me uh, if I would go with Alex. I thought it was the right thing to do and was an easy decision. I remember the group as a whole uh, was saddened by it. I was about to completely lose it. Um, and break down completely and was gathering all my things from the campsite. And uh, then Mike came up to me after talking with Dan about this and was like, I'm, I'm going with you, buddy. I was like, you don't have to do that. Why are you doing that? And he said, because I'm your friend. And that's what I needed right then. That kind of brought me back and let me get through the rest of it. The guy that was dispatched was, I think, one of the pilots for their mining company. Um, so he came in a Bell four-seater, um, touched it down on the tundra. He's like head-to-toe Carhartts, and uh, you know, not not Sar at all. But uh, we were very happy to see him. Once the helicopter picked me up, it was about an hour flight to this town, um, which is really small. It's this little village of about a thousand people. So we spent about 12 hours in Baker Lake. Then we hopped in a plane the next morning and we flew down to Winnipeg. And my parents were given the option to um, come up and get us. My parents were kind of eager to see me <laughs> after what had happened. So they drove overnight up to Winnipeg and they met Mike and I at the airport. It was kind of like a miracle to see him. We were just so happy and excited. And we drove him and Mike to the hospital in Winnipeg and then we waited several hours it seemed like five hours it was a very crowded emergency room because he needed to get rabies shots and and they had to treat the wound and and start giving him a stronger antibiotic so at some point Alex and I think Mike and I happened to be out in the hallway at the same time and Alex just looked at me and started telling me what happened so we walked through the whole bear attack and he got to one point when the bear was about to charge him, I think for the third time, and he looked at me and he said, that's when I knew I was going to die. 
We all lost it at that point. I'm looking at my 17-year-old son who miraculously come out of this, but he's telling me I thought I was going to die. I knew I was going to die. And so it took us a long time to kind of recover from the from all the trauma of it, but on the other hand, we followed his lead in not letting it define him or us. A week after I was helicoptered out, um, I was cleared to go back up to Winnipeg to meet our group when they came back, um, which was really, really a good feeling to be able to link back up with the guys. And then when everybody got up onto the deck of the dining hall and, and the campers and the guide met their families, again, that was a moment when I remember watching Dan, the guide, just finally let go and he cried in his parents' arms and all the campers cried in their parents' arms. I was able to emotionally let go and you know I started crying, my parents were there and everything. So for me that was like the moment where I could just I could just kinda, you know, take a, a big breath and sigh, uh, a, a relief. And then two weeks after that, I started my senior year of high school, <laughs> getting up early for school and doing a dressing change. And then, you know, seeing all my friends in the hallway who were just flabbergasted about what had happened. So we're really proud of him and, and know that every big adventure also has some risk. You know, I, I knew early on that this event had the potential to keep me from going into the woods and um, from exploring the wildernesses that I've just come to love and the experiences that I have there. Um, so I consciously decided early on that I was going to do what it took to get back out into the woods. That took a while. It was a process, but I was able to get back out into the woods and continue canoeing and um, eventually went back to work at this at, at Camp Minogen again as an in-camp staff and then as a trail guide, later going in and doing volunteer search and rescue um, in Minnesota here with the St. Louis County Rescue Squad, um, which operates in the Boundary Waters as well. And so I'm able to take that wilderness experience and sometimes have the opportunity to, you know, use it to help other people who are in bad situations and dealing with, you know, potentially the worst day of their lives. That's really rewarding. If you want to read this story in its full glory and details we couldn't include here, you can read Alex's book titled The 29th Day. This season of Out Alive is brought to you by Garmin. Together, we bring you a bonus survival story from someone who made it out alive thanks to their Garmin InReach satellite device. Here's adventurer and paraglider Britton Shaw to share his story. My name is Britton Shaw. I live in Fort Smith, Arkansas. I am a paragliding instructor as a hobby. On this particular day, it was textbook weather. It was great. It was beautiful. I'm flying across the Alps, and it was gorgeous. As I was crossing this area late on an August afternoon, I found myself in a large sinking air mass. Basically, it's just a very cold air mass that is sinking. Well, it was unexpected. So what I had to do is make a landing. So I landed on the edge of this largest glacier in Europe. 
once I got down, I packed all of my gear up, and I knew that I was in for a pretty long hike, probably a day or two out by foot where I was. I had food, water, everything, including my inReach. I had so much equipment with me, all of my flying gear, I wasn't able to take it with me. The terrain was too rugged. The slopes were very steep, and they were very rocky. With my inReach that I had, I was able to mark the position of all of my flying gear, so I abandoned it out on the edge of this glacier. As I was hiking out that late afternoon and almost in a little bit of a rush to beat the dark to get to a safe place for the night, out of nowhere, there was an unexpected rock slide. It was like a snow avalanche where this entire mountainside gave way. Survival training for avalanche is you, you swim in the snow to stay on top. And I found myself doing this in these rocks and pebbles and uh, this whole moving mass. It was slowing down to the point where it was going to stop, but it wasn't soon enough that I went over a cliff side. It was slow enough that I was able to dig my fingers in and grasp the rock wall and a ledge before I went off the cliff. So there I am. The rock slide stopped. I'm hanging by my fingertips. This ledge that I'm, I'm hanging on to is probably about 12 to 16 inches wide. I didn't have much for footing to raise myself up, but by a miracle, I was able to pull myself up and place, I'm not kidding you, I had one butt cheek on this little cliff edge. So there I am, heart's racing. I am so thankful that I am alive, but I look around and there is nothing. There is no escape, no way that I'm getting out. I'm too far below uh, some place to reach in order to crawl out. I couldn't even probably crawl out if I, or climb out if I could. Below me was a couple hundred feet of sheer vertical cliff. I was stuck. After I got my wits about me, I remembered, hey, you've got your in reach. It's right here on your, on your chest pocket. I pull it out and hit that SOS button. And just within, in less than a minute, I had the operators contacting me, messaging me, saying, hey, are you okay? They were checking my condition. Just that alone put me in such a peace of mind to know somebody knew where I was, I was gonna be rescued. I think that allowed me to think much more clearly and it gave me hope, it gave me the, the physical strength to keep myself perched on this cliff. The rescue team arrives in a jet helicopter. It took them about 20 minutes they make a couple of passes to survey the area. They drop a guy down. He puts this uh, fall protection on me. They lift us off of the side of a cliff, just like a Hollywood movie. The pilot asked 
me. He says, hey, I can tell you're a paraglider pilot. You've got all the flying gear. Where is your gear? And I used my inReach to show the pilot where my gear was. And he says, hey, we're going to get your gear on the way back. And sure enough, on our evac out, he does a pass, spots my gear, lowers one of the mountaineer folks down. They clip into my gear, hoist us up, and we sail off into the sunset. I'm Backpacker Skills Editor Zoe Gates, and here's a tip from Garmin. Rockfall can be largely unpredictable, but remaining aware of your surroundings and tuning into your senses can help warn you in the event of a slide. In areas where rockfall might occur, listen for the sound of shifting rocks or cracking boulders. If you notice a slide and moving out of the path is impossible, take shelter under overhangs or large boulders. This episode of Out Alive was produced by me, Luis Albanese, along with Zoe Gates. Our story editor and sound designer was Wild Acorns Media. Our script writer is Casey Lyons. This episode was mixed by Jason McDaniel from Electric Audio Inc. Thank you to Alex Messenger, Dan Kaifenheim, Michael Jensen, and Phyllis Messenger for sharing your stories and perspectives. If you enjoyed this episode of Out Alive, please subscribe and leave us a review.